Chapter Three of In the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Tannery House. During a moment's impressive silence, the three men standing side by side at Hawthwaite's desk stared at the blood-stained memento of the crime. Each was thinking the same thought. There before them was the life-blood of the man who, little more than an hour previously, had been full of energy forcefulness ambition it was peppermore who first spoke in an awe-stricken voice you'll take care of that mr superintendent he said a clue i should just think so exclaimed hawthwaite he picked up a box of letter-paper which lay close by emptied it of its contents and lifted the fragment of handkerchief by a corner that goes into my safe he continued as he placed his find in the box a clue, as you say, and an important one. That, as you may observe, is no common article. It's a gentleman's handkerchief, fine cambric. If it had only been the other part of it now, there'd probably have been a name on it, or initials wove into it. There's nothing of that sort you see on what's left. But it's something, and it may lead to a good deal. He put the cardboard box away in a safe and locked it up. Putting the key in his pocket, he gave Brent an informing glance. "'I've had a word or two with the medical men while I was out there,' he said confidentially. "'They say there's no doubt as to how he was killed. The murderer, their confident, was standing behind him, as he himself was either writing or looking over the papers on his desk, and suddenly thrust a knife clean through his shoulders. They say death would have been instantaneous.' "'A knife,' muttered Brent. "'Well,' continued Hawthwaite, "'as regards that, there are all sorts of knives. "'It would be a long, thin weapon,' said Dr. Wellesley, "'and Dr. Barber, he suggested that it was the sort of wound "'that would be caused by one of those old-fashioned rapiers. "'And they did say, both of them, "'that it had been used, whatever the weapon was, "'with great force, gone clean through.' Peppermore was listening to these gruesome details "'with all the ardour of the born news-seeker but Brent turned away. "'Is there anything I can do?' he asked. "'Why, there isn't,' replied Hawthwaite. "'The fact is, there is nothing to do outside our work. The doctors are doing theirs, and there'll have to be an inquest, of course. I've sent to notify Mr. Seagrave, the coroner, already, and I'm having a thorough search made of the Moot Hall, and making inquiries about his worship's last movements. There's nothing more can be done at present.' one of my men has gone round to tell his landlady it's a fortunate thing mr brent he added with a knowing look that your cousin wasn't a married man that would have been a fine thing to have to break to a man's wife and family about relations now mr brent you'll know what to do i know nothing about his private affairs yes answered brent but i'm much more concerned just now about his public affairs it seems to me, indeed it's no use trying to disguise it, that this has arisen out of the fact that as mayor of Hathelsborough he was concerning himself in bringing about some drastic reforms in the town. You probably know yourself that he wasn't popular. Yes, yes, Mr. Brent, interrupted Hawthwaite. But then, you know, murder. I can't think there's anybody in this place would carry their likes to that length. Murder. You don't know, said Brent. "'But at any rate, I'm my cousin's nearest blood relation, "'and I'm going to find out who killed him, "'if it's humanly possible. 
now who is there in the town who knows most about his public affairs who is there who's most conversant with whatever it was that he had in hand hawthwaite seemed to consider matters well alderman crood the tanner is the deputy mayor he replied at last i should say he's as good a man to go to as anybody mr brent he's chairman of the financial committee too and it was in financial matters that mr wallingford was wanting to make these reforms you've mentioned if there's anything known i mean that i don't know alderman crood's the most likely man to know it alderman crood remarked peppermore softly knows everything that goes on in hathelsborough everything so to speak so to speak said hawthwaite there are things of course where does alderman crood live asked brent already he was moving towards the door as i can do nothing here i'll go to him at once i'm not going to leave a stone unturned in this matter superintendent quite right mr brent quite right neither will i asserted hawthwaite alderman crood lives by his tannery the far end of town anybody will show you the place once you're past the big church i'm going that way remarked peppermore come with me mr brent he led brent out into st lawrence lane a narrow thoroughfare at the back of the moot hall and turning a corner emerged on the market-place over which the night shadows had now fallen a terrible affair this mr brent he said as they walked along and a most extraordinary one too it'll be more than a nine days wonder here a deep mystery sir and i question if you get much light on it where you're going you said that alderman crood knew everything observed brent ay answered peppermore with a short laugh but that isn't to say he'll tell everything or anything alderman crood mr brent is the closest man in this town which is saying a good deal since i came here sir ten years ago i've learnt much and if you'll drop in at the monitor office any time you like mr brent morning's preferable i'll give you the benefit of my experience hathelsborough folk sir are in my opinion the queerest lot in all england but you want to see alderman crood now go to the end of the market-place turn down barley market drop a hundred yards or so down the hill at the end and you'll smell crood's tan-yard even if you don't see it his is the big solid-looking house at the side you can't miss it the editor reporter shot up an alley at his left at the head of which was a lighted window with monitor office on it in black letters and brent went on his way to seek the deputy mayor as he passed low cross and at the east end of the great church and turned into the wide irregular space called barley market he tried to analyze his feelings about the tragic event on which he had chanced without warning he had left fleet street early that afternoon thinking of nothing but a few days pleasant change and here he was in that quiet old world town faced with the fact that his kinsman and host had been brutally murdered at the very hour of his arrival he was conscious of a fierce if dull resentment the resentment of a tribesman who finds one of his clan done to death and knows that the avenging of blood is on his shoulders from henceforth he had no particular affection for his cousin and therefore no great sense of personal loss but wallingford after all was of his breed and he must bring the murderer to justice 
Alderman Crood's house, big, broad, high, loomed up across him as the odours of the tan-yard at its side and rear assailed his nostrils. As he went towards it, the front door opened a little, and a man came out. He and Brent met in the light of a street lamp, and Brent recognised a policeman whom he had seen in the mayor's parlour. The man recognised him and touched his helmet. Brent stopped. "'Oh,' he said, "'have you been to tell Mr. Crood of what has happened?' "'Just that, sir,' replied the policeman. "'He's deputy mayor, sir.' "'I know,' said Brent. "'Then he's at home?' "'Yes, sir.' Brent was going forward, but a sudden curiosity seized on him. He paused, glancing at the policeman suggestively. "'Did... did Mr. Crood say anything?' he asked. The policeman shook his head. "'Nothing, sir, except that he supposed Superintendent Hawthwaite was seeing to everything.' "'Did you happen to tell him that I was here?' "'I did, sir. I said his worship's cousin from London had just come. No harm, sir, I hope.' "'Not a bit. Glad you did,' said Brent. "'He'll expect me.' He said good-night to the man and walked forward to Alderman Crood's door. It was like the house to which it gave entrance, very high and broad, a massive affair, topped by a glass transom, behind which a light, very dim and feeble, was burning. Brent felt for and rang a bell, and heard it ring somewhere far off in the house. Then he waited, waited so long that he was about to ring again, when he heard a bolt being withdrawn inside the big door, then another. Each creaked in a fashion that suggested small use, and the need of a little oil. The door opened, and he found himself confronting a girl, who stood holding a small lamp in her hand. Behind her, at the far end of a gloomy, cavernous hall, a swinging lamp turned low, silhouetted her figure. Something about the girl made Brent look at her with more attention than he would ordinarily have given. She was a tallish girl, whose figure would have been unusually good had it been properly filled out. As it was, she was thin, but only too thin for her proportions. Her thinness, had she been three inches shorter, would have passed for a graceful slenderness. But Brent took this in at a glance. His attention was more particularly concentrated on the girl's face, a delicate oval framed in a mass of dark hair. She was all dark, dark hair, an olive complexion, large, unusually lustrous dark eyes, fringed by long soft lashes, and an almost dark rose tint on her cheeks. And in the look which she gave him there was something as soft as her eyes, which were those of a shy animal, something appealing, pathetic. He glanced hastily at her attire, simple even to plainness, and wondered who she was, and what was her exact status in that big house which seemed to require the service of a staff of domestics. Brent asked for Alderman Crood. The girl glanced towards the end of a hall, and then looked at him doubtfully. "'What name?' she inquired, in tones that were little above a whisper. "'My name's Brent,' the caller answered, in a clear, loud voice. Somehow he had a suspicion that Crood was listening at the other end of the cavernous hall. "'I am Mr. Wallingford's cousin.' The girl gave him a curious glance, and motioning him to wait, went away up the hall to a door which stood partly open, revealing a lighted interior. She disappeared within, came out again, walked a little way towards Brent, and spoke with a timid smile. 
"'Will you please come this way?' she said. "'Mr. Crood will see you.' Brent strode up the hall, the girl preceding him, pushed open the door which she had just left. He walked into a big room, and through a fog of tobacco smoke saw that he was in the presence of three men who sat in armchairs round a hearth whereon a big fire of logs blazed. Behind their chairs a table was set out with decanters and glasses, a tobacco jar and cigar boxes. Clearly he had interrupted a symposium of a friendly and social sort. The visitor's eyes went straight to the obvious master of the house, a big, heavily built, massive-framed man of sixty or thereabouts, who sat in state on the right-hand side of the hearth. Brent took in certain details of his appearance at a glance, the broad, flabby, parchment-hued face, wide mouth, square jaw, and small shrewd eyes, the suit of dead black broadcloth, and the ample black neckcloth swathed about an old-fashioned collar. He noted, too, the fob which dangled from Alderman Crood's waist and its ancient seals and ornaments. A survival of the past, Alderman Crood, he thought, in outward seeming, but there was that in his watchful expression which has belonged to man in every age. The small shrewd eyes, in their turn, measured up Brent as he crossed the threshold, and Crood, seeing what he would have described as a well-dressed young gentleman who was evidently used to superior society, did what he certainly would not have done for any man in Hathelsborough. He rose from his chair and stretched out a hand. "'How do you do, sir?' he said in a fat, unctuous voice. "'The cousin of our lamented mayor, poor gentleman, "'of whose terrible fate we have at this moment learned, sir. "'I can assure you, Mr. Brent, I think, "'and whatever other relations there may be, "'of our sincere sympathy, sir. "'I never knew a more deplorable thing in my life. "'And to happen just as you should arrive "'on a visit to your cousin, Mr. Brent, dear, dear!' The constable, who came to inform me of what had happened, mentioned that you'd come, and we were just talking. But I'll introduce you to these gentlemen, sir. Allow me. Mr. Mallet, our esteemed bank manager. Mr. Coppinger, our respected borough treasurer. Brent silently shook hands with the two other men. Just as silently he made a sharp inspection of them as they resettled themselves in their chairs. Mallet, a spick-and-span sort of man, very precise as to the cut of his clothes, and particularly as to the quality of his linen and the trimmings of his old-fashioned side-whiskers, he set down at once as the personification of sly watchfulness. He was the type of person who would hear all and say no more than was necessary or obligatory. Coppinger, a younger man, had that same watchful look. A moment later Brent saw it in Crude's big face, too. They were all watchful, all sly, these men, he decided, the sort who would sit by and listen, and admit nothing and tell nothing. Already before even he asked the questions which he had come to put, he knew that he would get no answer other than non-committal evasive ones. He saw that all three men, instead of being anxious to give him information, were actuated by the same desire, to find out what he knew, to hear what he had to say. Crude, as Brent seated himself, waved a hand towards the decanters on the table. "'You'll try a little drop of something, Mr. Brent,' he said, with insinuating hospitality. "'A taste of whisky now. 
do you no harm after what you've just been through he turned to the girl who had followed brent into the room and picking up her needlework had seated herself near the master of the house queenie my love he continued give the gentleman a whisky and soda say the word sir my niece sir miss queenie crood all my establishment mr brent quiet old-fashioned folk we are but glad to see you sir though i wish the occasion had been a merrier one oh dear brent made the girl a polite bow and not wishing to show himself stand-offish took the glass which she mixed and handed it to him he turned to crood it's not a pleasant occasion for me sir he said i am my cousin's nearest blood relative and it lies with me to do what i can to find out who's responsible for his death i understand that you are deputy mayor so naturally you're conversant with his public affairs now i've learnt within the last hour that he had become unpopular in the town made enemies is that so mr crood crood who was smoking a long churchwarden's pipe took its stem from his lips and waved it in the air with an expressive motion well well he said soothingly there might have been a little of something of that sort you know mr brent but in a purely political sense sir an entirely political sense only no personal feeling you know sir i'm sure mr mallet there will agree with me and mr coppinger too absolutely said mallet unreservedly said coppinger your cousin sir our late lamented mayor was much respected in the town continued crood he was the hardest working mayor we've had for many years mr brent a first-rate man of business observed mallet a particularly clever hand at figures remarked coppinger a man as tried hard to do his duty said crood of course i'll not say that everybody saw eye to eye with him they didn't wherever there's public bodies mr brent there'll be parties your poor cousin had his party and there was to be sure a party against him and his but you'll be well aware sir as a london gentleman that no doubt often visits parliament that here in england men is enemies in politics that's firm friends outside em i believe i may say that that's a fact sir oh no doubt agreed brent he was already feeling at a loss and he scarcely knew what to say next i heard though that my cousin as mayor was proposing such drastic reforms in the administration of your borough affairs that well in short that personal feeling had been imported crood shook his head more solemnly than ever i think you've been misinformed on that point mr brent he said there may be no doubt are mischievous persons that would say such things but i never heard nothing of the sort sir political feeling perhaps but personal feeling no nothing of the sort said coppinger now i should say remarked crood waving his pipe again that our late lamented mayor as an individual was much thought of amongst the townspeople i believe mr mallet will agree with that and mr coppinger a great deal thought of answered mallet by i should say everybody added coppinger he was of course a comparative stranger continued crood twelve years only had he been amongst us and now cut off sudden and malicious at the beginning of his career but well thought of sir well thought of then you feel sure that this crime has not sprung out of his public affairs suggested brent 
It's not what you'd call a political murder. Of that, sir, I would take my solemn oath, declared Crude. The idea, sir, is ridiculous. Absurd, said Mallet. Out of the question, affirmed Coppinger. Why, then, has he been murdered, asked Brent. What's at the bottom of it? All three men shook their heads. They looked at each other. They looked at Brent. I what? said Crude. Just so, agreed Mallet. That's precisely where it is, concluded Coppinger. Exactly. More in it than anyone knows of, most probably at present, Mr. Brent, observed Crude, with solemn significance. Time, sir, time. Time, sir, may tell. May. Brent saw that he was not going to get any information under that roof, and after a further brief exchange of trite observations, he rose to take his leave. Alderman Crude wrung his hand. "'Sorry I am, sir, that your first visit to my establishment should be under such painful circumstances,' he said unctuously. "'I hope you'll favour me with another talk, sir. Always pleased to see a London gentleman, I'm sure.' We're behind, perhaps, in these parts, Mr. Brent, but honest and hearty, sir, honest and hearty. Queenie, my love, you'll open the door for the young gentleman? The girl took Brent into the gloomy hall. Halfway along its shadows, she suddenly turned on him with a half-shy, half-daring expression. You are from London, she whispered. From London? Yes, said Brent. Why? I want to to talk to somebody about London, she went on, with a nervous backward glance at the door they had just left. May I, will you let me talk to you? To be sure, answered Brent, but when, where? I go into the castle grounds every afternoon, she answered timidly. Could, could you come there sometime? Tomorrow afternoon, suggested Brent. Say three o'clock, would that do? Yes, she whispered, thank you. I'll be there. It seems queer, but I'll tell you. Thank you again. You'll understand tomorrow. She had her hand on the big street door by then. Without more words, she let him out into the night. He heard the door close heavily behind him. He went back towards the heart of the little town, wondering. Only a few hours before, he had been in the rush and bustle of Fleet Street, and now here he was, two hundred miles away, out of the world, and faced with an atmosphere of murder and mystery. End of chapter 3